0: Welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Thank you for your company, your continued support, your love, your kindness, your pilgrimage alongside mine. I've been climbing a very difficult mountain lately, and I've been lucky not to have fallen down the slope along the path from time to time, but your support has been critical in my ability to persevere. Pilgrims continue despite the setbacks we walk on with injury and pain and hurt, much like life. I'm braver, I suppose stronger, and more resilient than I ever thought I was. It's a triumph of spirit and of worth. Someone said to me this week, you should treasure your worth. I appreciated the thought, though I expect it may take some time to truly hear the ring of the bell it sounded. But the word I took out of it was treasure. That rare and much sought after mysterious reward, treasure. I hope we all treasure the joy of our lives, the lives we share together as pilgrims, as humans, as mothers with children, fathers with sons and daughters, brothers with sisters, sisters with brothers, siblings, all, parents with children or grandparents with grandchildren. This is treasure. Our much sought after mysterious reward. Treasure it. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, and if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm a Sydney-based broadcaster, musician, writer, and podcaster, and each week I speak to someone from around the world, hoping to make the world a smaller place for pilgrims and for all of us. Well, my quote this week is really beautiful. I couldn't find the person to whom I ought to credit the quote, so I'll just say, whoever you are, thank you. We come with nothing. We go with nothing, but one great thing we can achieve in our beautiful life is a little remembrance in someone's mind and a small place in someone's heart. Amen. (laughs) We come with nothing, we go with nothing, but one great thing we can achieve in our beautiful life is a little remembrance in someone's mind and a small place in someone's heart. (laughs) Hallelujah and amen. My guest this week is a Canadian pilgrim, Oliver Sovey, who wrote to me from the small world of Prince Edward Island in eastern Canada. Now, he may come from a small world, but he's made the big world his world. Hola. Welcome, pilgrim. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm really very well. Home for you is Victoria by the Sea, Prince Edward Island on the east coast of Canada. What's life like there today? What's it like in the world of covid
1: well, Victoria-by-the-Sea and uh, and then also the capital, Charlottetown, here on Prince Edward Island. Um, it's a pretty small spot, and it's a very seasonal island too, right? So um, we're going through a seasonal change now, and especially with uh, with COVID or the beer bug, um, there's a lot of time to reflect. Things are quieter. um the university and the college, this is all being done online now. So there's not as much, uh, of life and even, even downtown here. It's, uh
0: it's, it's pretty quiet compared to other years. So when you say, um, it's a time to reflect, have you undergone what they're calling a COVID reboot?
1: A COVID reboot? Um, kind of, yeah. Like I was on a Camino this winter and then I came back, and everything kind of shut down. But then here it it kind of reopened there mid May, and we had a we had a summer. So we're very tourist tourism based here, and kind of everything opened, um, limited capacity levels. But we we had a busy summer here, and they created this like Atlantic bubble thing. So Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, New Brunswick. They could all travel amongst the provinces, um, but yeah, now it's uh, things have closed, and you know, big season change.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Which you would normally do anyway, wouldn't you? Things would be really quiet. Which and you normally down. do anyway. Yeah, and and, it, and you, exactly. you have kind of uber winters, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. We have a full on winter here. Um, there's no snow yet. It hasn't snowed on Prince Edward Island yet. Uh, There's still people walking in shorts, and and hopefully the snow holds off as long as possible.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. I I want to go off track a little bit this week, Oliver. We're approaching 200 interviews on the podcast. I want to know about Oliver the Pilgrim, but I also want to know about you. And because later I want to talk about your world travels and and what kind of inspires someone to, to undertake that kind of life, because that's a big a big challenge and, and it takes a great skill and bravery in a sense. But let's go right back. What's your earliest memory? Wow. My earliest memory, it would
1: probably, you know, it, it would probably go back to to just being a, a kid here in Charlottetown. Um, I guess we moved out to Victoria Village when I was three And I've got quite a few memories from that. But uh, I had a really good childhood. You know, things were simple. We spent a lot of time outside. There were always games to play, kids around. Uh, We grew up on the coast, so you'd swim all summer. Uh, When you weren't swimming, you were playing ball hockey or in
0: sports. And it was, you know, it was a really good place to grow up here on Prince Edward Island. Who had the greatest influence on you during your childhood? And and how do you think that shaped you, leading to a life of pilgrimage?
1: Well, I grew up in a really small community of like 120 people. So, so we were always really free, right? And, and the neighbours were like our parents. And so I'd say the community shaped me a lot. Um, and... Uh, And yeah, we always had a lot of freedom growing up, so I guess it was natural um, to want to get my passport and take off.
0: Yeah, yeah, how interesting, because you've been all around the world, 53 countries in all. Yeah, I've traveled a lot. Yeah, you have. What's your vision of the world?
1: My vision of the world, you know, as diverse as it is, and, and all the different cultures and languages and food and dress and and everything all around the world people are pretty much the same Mm. you know and and people want to live a good clean life they want good healthy food and water and a safe shelter they want their kids to be in a good school and have a nice childhood and, and and work a job they enjoy and at the end of the week you know maybe have their friends and neighbours over for supper and a beer and,
0: and and just live a good life. Yeah, that's pretty simple, isn't it? I, I think those are the things, though, that we miss most when things like COVID come into our world, uh, things that threaten the very simple things that we love so much that make life so enjoyable, hey? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was speaking with a couple of Canadians two weeks ago, Mark and Helena Litherland, and we talked about the Tragically yep. Hip. I really love that band. Um, and mm-hmm. they're quintessentially Canadian. What do you think it means to be Canadian? To be Canadian?
1: You know, it's a it's a good question, especially these days, because uh, because the identity of a Canadian... It, it it really depends on who you ask, and and Canada is almost like a country that is still searching to know who it is itself. You know, yeah, right. As Canada, as we're we're still connected to to the Queen and the Royal Family of England, um, and and it's like. Yes, it's semi-figurehead, but it is legislative too, and you know I think Canada's still searching for its own identity.
0: Well, Australia has a fair bit of that too, right? Because in Australia, you know, we're we're very similar countries. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. We've said that here before. Indeed, we are still linked to the monarchy as well. Um, the difference being, you have your own flag. Yeah, all right, We've still got the Union Jack in the corner of our flag, which, uh, well, we won't go into politics. We won't get into all of that. We, we don't need that here. Oh, we, we, we can talk for days. <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, um, how did the Camino de Santiago come into your life? Yeah, it was
1: actually. Um, well, I've spent I've spent my life in in the restaurant industry, right, and uh, in in a family restaurant called the Landmark Cafe, and, uh, and we are finishing up for another summer, so we were getting ready to close, and uh, my father and I, we planned on going down to Uruguay, because I was down there a few years before, um, nice part of the world between Argentina and Brazil, mm. on the coast, almost like uh, like a little southern PEI. Yeah. And we were going to go down there, and uh, my aunt and uncle just came back from Spain, and they did a Camino, and they said, "Hey, you know, there's this this trail, this pilgrimage, the Camino de Santiago. Da 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 da. Check it out." And uh, and like the next day, we said, "You know, Uruguay can wait. Let's go on this hike." Hmm. So we closed, and October came, and we went to Spain, and this was. The Camino Francais.
0: Had you done much research?
1: No, not really. But after after um, they put the bug in our ear and we decided to do this, then, you know, you pour into to research into yeah. YouTube and YouTube and you're Googling in videos and
0: maps and, and it happens pretty quick. Now, you've got quite a swag of Caminos under your belt and we'll get to those in a moment. But I think... And I've said it here many times with my guests before that life is a lot like a pilgrimage. There are good days and bad days and some days we think we're doing it easily and other times we feel we may not have the strength to carry on, but we do carry on. Tell us about then your life pilgrimage and where you find the inner strength to get over those bad days, those days that perhaps aren't as easy as others, because here you are a real world traveller.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, in world traveling, it's a lot like the Camino 2. And um, and traveling, there's days where it can be really tough and where you have the 36-hour bus ride or, or you're waiting on a bus station floor for hours mm-hmm. and, and like, it's got its ups and downs as well. So, so dealing with, you know, there's a lot of... I find the bad times would be the times of extreme loneliness or when you're feeling that like nostalgic for, you know, that homesickness feeling and you're yeah. on the other side of the world. Um, I find the best when you, when you're feeling like that and you're really down, I've, I find reading or, or some form of like a podcast or something would be for me the best way to deal with that. Cause it does happen. And especially if you go on trips where you're backpacking for five, six months um, at a time, you're definitely going to experience that. Or try to pick up uh, pick up a signal and, and call someone, try to get it, get in touch with a friend and, and talk yeah. for a bit.
0: Yeah, reach out. Reach yeah. out. Yeah. Because this world is such a small place, really. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're do- on the other side of the world. Exactly, and here we are just chatting as if we're in – uh, one, one, one end of the street to the other what do you love most about the Camino now you've walked a few times
1: yeah so you know I've traveled so much so there's times that I feel like uh, I almost have this post-traumatic travel syndrome right where where <laughs> there's times I feel like I'm just permanently traveling in my mind but for the Camino, you know, and, and we'll get back to the introduction too when you talked about treasure because this, this fits in perfect uh, at the end here. But, you know, the Camino to just to, to throw what I need in a bag and step outside of my society, right, the one that's kind of the matrix that I'm living in right now, to step out and set off on foot um, for this like simple nomadic adventure is the absolute freedom. And the only responsibility you have is, is you. So you've stepped off this hamster wheel, or even if you have a really nice routine, you've stepped out of this circular routine for this, this like linear adventure and you're just off, and all you have to do is feed yourself and drink lots of water and find a shelter and, you know, follow the trail. Yeah. And for me, it's like uh, I don't watch any TV. I don't play video games. But the Camino is like you're the ultimate character in a wonderful movie or a video game, right? And you're living it. <laughs>
0: That's a really great way. No one's ever said that before. That's awesome. I really love that. That's how I look at it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But you have one life. Yeah,
1: quite. Right? One life.
0: Yeah. No dress rehearsal. That's what... Uh...
1: No, so you can't, you yeah. know, you can't fall off a cliff or in a ravine or, or freeze and...
0: Yeah. So... What do you think you learned about yourself on the Camino? I can, you know,
1: you learn, I've learned to really, I've always said that, uh, like traveling, I've, I've developed this slogan years ago, years ago, that uh, the world is my mosh pit, right? Because I've been all over the world and, and no matter where I am, whatever culture, religion or whatever, the, pe- the people have always been there to catch me like very much like a mosh pit. Right. And it's always that's I've always traveled with that philosophy. And then, so when people talk about the, the trail magic, right, you've heard this. Yeah. Yeah. The magic of the Camino, right. So, so this is kind of like this, the same thing, right. The trail magic or this, uh, the world is my mosh pit. Um, so it's, you're kind of, it's kind of taught me to, to slow it down a bit. Right. To appreciate, to, to not just go around like, uh, having people hold me up in this, but to, to appreciate it and slow it down. And by traveling on foot and not just busing or local boating in this between town to town, you really slow it down and you appreciate, um,
0: the, the people who help you more. If that makes sense. If that makes absolute sense. I love that. The mosh pit. Yeah. The mosh pit. Yeah. 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 The people, they yeah. hold you up. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes, you know, in a mosh pit, you have, you have to go with, you don't have any choice. You have to go with the flow. Yeah. You ride it, eh? Yeah. <laughs> you ride it. You walk the Camino Frances, the Via de la Plata, the Portuguese from Santiago to Porto. Most recently, though, you walked the Camino Sureste in January and February this year. Tell us about the Sureste. Yes,
1: yeah, so this um, this is a really beautiful Camino, and I wanted to do a Camino. I had time off work, and I and my time was you know I had January, February, March off, so I wanted to do a Camino that. Um, that there wouldn't be too many people on it. And and also I was going in a time of year when not a lot of people are on the Caminos anyway. So I was looking around and you know I was thinking maybe I start in Lisbon or maybe in Granada. And then I thought maybe I don't want to be on the Via de la Plata that long. And as I'm going through the different Caminos and I was thinking through France, I kind of came to, I'm gonna start in Alicante and do the Camino Este. And as I was doing research on it, it's not like the Camino Francais where you can just type Camino Francais into YouTube and you've got a million uh, videos and hits and stuff. So, you know, the research was it was a little more piecemeal. And um, but I decided on doing it. So I flew. I purposely um, I wanted to be off planet for New Year's. So I was in the air december 31st and landed in madrid on january 1st and then i uh i just took a bus right down to alicante and there i spent three days just kind of hanging out and enjoying being back in spain and i found the pilgrim's office there and then on january
0: 4th i set off on foot and it was 1300 kilometers or something
1: yeah, I think it was about thirteen hundred from Alicante to Muxia.
0: Uh huh. And do you go through Madrid or do you bypass Madrid? You bypass it. So
1: I would have uh, the major cities that I hit. I would have went uh, Alicante to Albacete, and then um, through Toledo, oh. Avila, Benevente, and then from there you can either continue north to Astorga. And then get on the Francaise, or uh, or I, I went west to Santa Marta de Terra, and then um, then I was on the Santa Brez so towards Urense. Ah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's supposed to be absolutely stunning that part of that walk. Yeah,
1: yeah. In Urense, this is uh, the city has these uh, uh, hot springs. Ah. The Baños Thermales, and right in the center of town, you can get in this hot spring. Amazing.
0: Do people along the way in those towns understand that you're on a Camino? People in towns along the Camino Frances, for instance, are used to seeing pilgrims every day. But what about on the Sureste?
1: Yeah, totally. So they they knew what I was doing, and they knew I was a pilgrim, um, but, uh, but they don't get a lot of them. And as I was going, you know, I was like, I knew I was going on a Camino that I wouldn't see a lot of people on. I didn't know that I wasn't going to see anyone. Um, And and like, you know, I knew pretty quick after the first couple days of checking the sign in book, seeing, okay, there's no one ahead of me for weeks. Um, I'm not going to see anyone And then you're maybe thinking, okay, well, Albacete, maybe some people join in or Toledo, maybe some people join in or now the Via de la Plata and uh, and the Sureste are meeting. Maybe some people join in. But uh, but no, I walked (laughs) from Alicante to Santiago de la Compostela without seeing a single pilgrim.
0: So if yeah. if there are no pilgrims, where are you staying? What sort of infrastructure is available? Albergues and, and, and the like yeah, so so they have this. Um, there's a great
1: they gave me a great guidebook in Alicante. So uh, so kinda like those John Briarly books, but one for the Sureste. Um and it's uh it's got maps it's got everything but it's all in spanish huh but it's a, but it's a great book guys okay? so they so they give me this and and there's there's all kinds of different albergues um some of them are in monasteries some of them are in these uh polideportivos like the sports centers yeah um i was in one and it was the dressing rooms of a municipal pool I was in the soccer field changing rooms. One was in the consulta medica, like the medical clinic um and then there was a couple like private ones, and out of my forty three days, I wrote down here, I stayed in nine places that were like uh um like hotels like fifteen fifteen to to thirty euro places. Wow. But aside from that, you know, there was, I stayed in 30, 30 some albergues.
0: And so, and, and remembering just for my listeners benefit, that's January and February this year. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. So pre COVID.
1: Yeah. So pre COVID, you know, there was like, there was rumors of it. There was chatter, uh, mid January, it started, you know, showing up in the States and stuff, but. But there was nothing like mass, like there you know, life was normal, um, except except the fact that here I was on this walk that was you know almost post apocalyptic. Yeah, because it was it was just me, and and you know some of these towns and cities in in Spain, um, if you're not in them in the summer. They're like ghost towns.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: So I could I could walk up to a town, which would be a big town on Prince Edward Island standards, and I'll walk through the whole town and there's there's no one. There's a dog or a chicken. And then you might see that like, you know, that glowing San Miguel or Estrella Galicia sign and you walk in and the whole town's in the bar. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's such a great such a great image. That's so funny, isn't it? Sunny and gorgeous and beautiful outside and they're all in the dark inside. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So whereas the Camino Francaise and you can call call it the way. This this Camino, this Sureste, at the time I did it, I called it the Road. Yeah, right. Like that book.
0: Yeah. The book The Road. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it was an amazing Camino.
0: Yeah. You wrote to me to say that you wanted a solitary Camino. You certainly found that. But why did yeah. you why did you want a solitary Camino? Because, you know, I like
1: I like to keep challenging myself more and more. So you know, after I did the Francaise, I, I wanted something different with uh, with less people, so so I did the, the Via de la Plata from Sevilla. Mm. And this was, this was like another step towards this sureste I did. Um, There was people on it, but, but not a lot. There was that camaraderie um, and, you know, you'd hike with a few people, but then there was still a lot of like uh, a lot of time on your own, which I think you need that on your Camino too, right? To like, to enter the woods or something on your own and, and do, do a solid 15K uh, through the forest and, or, or the mazette, or whatever,
0: but just to spend time on your own. It's very, very important. And it's something I think that we don't treasure enough. We ought to treasure yeah. a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that makes this sureste more difficult than other Caminos you have walked?
1: Well, it would be, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that you have to do huge legs, but there's definitely some points where you have to do the leg because there's no there's there's sections of of no nothing in between, right? Right. So so from this town to this town rather there being three or four towns maybe you're tired and want to stop or maybe you get to your destination but want to walk another hour. The sureste has got less of that. Yeah, right. So like You know, he- and maybe there's a day You know, I did this in 43 days, but I don't take any rest days. Um, So say there's something like like Toledo, right? I definitely want to see that. So I'll plan to do a shorter day. I'll I'll maybe be 15, 20K away so I can get there early, shower, and then I have the whole day to explore.
0: So how far do you walk on average per day on your Caminos? It's usually about 30 kilometers. Okay. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, 30 35 kilometers. You've walked all these caminos. Do you collect compostelas?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah. I uh, I they're they're all still in tubes <laughs> in a in a bag in a chest of drawers. But I do I get the stamps and I get the compostela. And then um, I've got my Musciano and my Finisterre Compostela, and I'll keep getting them. And one day I'll frame them all. And, you know, I tell my friends, I've showed them, and, uh, and I've said, you know, these these are more important to me than if I had a wall of of degrees hanging, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: So these are,
0: they're, I collect them because they're my... Trail degrees, yeah. Trail degrees, that's awesome. Tell me about arriving in Santiago de Compostela. This this last time, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, it well, it was weird because here I arrived just me. I think I got in. I think it was like February thirteenth or something. Um, there were pilgrims around. It was a nice sunny day, blue skies, and uh, and nothing really really changed. I noticed they've they've been doing uh, construction there on the front for a long time. Yeah, and that was almost done because uh, I think getting everything ready for the holy year next year. And um, and you know Santiago, I always stay at the same spot. I go to this. Uh,
0: Monasterio de San Martín Penario. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Do you know the place? Yeah, I do know it. Yeah, I've never stayed there, but I, I had planned on staying there, but it was booked out.
1: Okay, yeah. No, it's a great spot. And they reserve. They've got a floor. Um, the rooms are bare basic, but they've got a floor for pilgrims, and it's like 21, 22 euros a night, uh, breakfast included. But it's just such a beautiful building. So, um, so this last time, yeah, in Santiago, I, I basically I went in. I spent one night because I was continuing on to uh, to Mushia. The next day, so I plan on walking three days to Mushia, and I got up in Santiago, and um, I got up early, and I took off, and I got to this Negreras and it was like uh, it was like eleven in the morning and i thought no it's way too early so i keep going and i knew there was places coming up and every place i got to was closed and uh and then finally in the evening i get to this Roa, 56 kilometers from santiago oh. <laughs> and i just got into this uh casa manola and this place man beautiful guest house Good hot shower, change of clothes. I ordered a big meal. I think I took a couple bites. I was so tired I couldn't even eat. And uh, and then the next day, you know, I did the 30k to Mushia, and I was done. That was it. 43 days, and uh, and
0: yeah, that was it. How fantastic! Such an amazing feeling, isn't it? Uh, 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 yeah, that overwhelming feeling of achievement is such a a, a, a reassuring heartwarming feeling in
1: especially on this Camino because um you know I was in I was in really good shape I've uh ever since my first Camino I have just really haven't stopped walking I walked 10, 10 to 20k a day um and I was in really good shape but it was if this Camino was a mentally tough Camino and yeah there was people I'd see the Spanish people the people in the towns and the hospitaleros and um i spend a lot of time in the grocery stores and uh and that but the, but no other pilgrims and and a lot of times you know the night before i showed up into town or that day walking I'd, I'd call because this guidebook has the numbers of uh of the different guest houses and i'd call advance and i'd just say hey i'm coming um the next day whatever can you be there at such and such time or where do I pick up the key or whatever? Sometimes you get the key in a bar or at the police station or, or something. And, um, and they'd usually just come and open it for you. You'd talk a bit, they'd give you the stamp and then back to being on your own. Yeah. So I had my routine and uh, it was it was a beautiful Camino, but it was the the hardest part of this was definitely um, the the mental aspect.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you would have been relieved, in a sense, to have finished it. But moreover, um, yeah, again, that great sense of of personal achievement. When you when you get home, though, after something mm. as solitary and as as uh, internal as that Camino, how how do you feel when you get home and how do you cope with it? How does the Camino kind of bubble to the surface then in your day-to-day life?
1: I think every time and as you keep doing Caminos and every Camino, it keeps adding to you. So your experiences and the people you meet, and the different things along the way that just you know made you slow down and go hmm that's kind of neat or <laughs> i think that all that kind of it stays with you and in your personal life you know it's 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 difficult because the traveling you is always different th- than the you at home the you that that people expect you to be and When you're on the Camino or, you know, when you're just off and you're backpacking and you're in a place where nobody knows you, it's almost like you're more the real you. And it's, it's always a weird feeling after a Camino. It's almost, it's almost like a, like a very, a very positive depression because you know, you check in Mushia. I get into Mushia. I checked in, put my bag down. That night I did my laundry and it was like, I kind of separate those, those pilgrim clothes, my spandex, my shorts, my layers, right? Um, my buff, that kind of gets put into the bottom of your backpack as you put on your street clothes and your, your, your identity changes. But after, you know what I did after this Camino? I, uh, I was in Muxia. Yeah. And, and like I said, uh, you know, you're suffering that, that positive depression, but you feel yeah. great. You're walking around Muxia, your legs, you're strong. And, uh, and, and I still had three weeks, three and a half weeks. So I didn't know what to do. And I was, uh, I was sitting in the guest house and I was, I was on different... Different websites looking for flights, and I was typing in everything from Cape Verde to Iceland, and or thinking maybe I walk the Camino, you know, maybe I do the Inglés or the Primitivo, and uh, and I bought a ticket to Cairo. So so I just finished this solitude Camino. I spend three days in Muxia. I go back to Madrid, and the next day I step out of the airport. I'm in Cairo, Egypt. What? 20 million people. Yeah. <laughs> Bustling. Just insane, right? So I'm like, holy smokes. What a difference yeah. from a solitary Camino to Cairo, Egypt. But I had a blast and I traveled. I traveled Egypt the same way that I just did the Camino. Like I flew to Alicante with uh, nothing but confidence and all my skills and experience and the same thing I flew to Cairo and did it how I travel anywhere I backpacked the whole country um right down to like Abu Simbel near the border with Sudan and Luxor uh Aswan I went over I was in uh I was in uh I crossed the Suez I was at the pyramids I crossed the Suez I was in Hurghada Dahab uh, all over and I and then it was time to go home, and I remember I was just like I was I was on the beach in Dahab, and I was just staring across to Saudi Arabia and the Red Sea, and just like the Camino, I had this I had a journey home, and you know I wanted to get home, but to get home, I had to go from Cairo to Lebanon, back to Madrid for a couple of days. Then I went to New York City to see uh, my grandmother. By this time, it was mid-March, and things were heating up with the beer bug. Um, emergency was declared. Flew to Montreal, back to Prince Edward Island, my little village of 100 people. And, uh, and that's when I lit the wood stove,
0: had a coffee, and said holy smokes what a trip <laughs> that's great that's <laughs> yeah that's awesome i'd really love that story the way you told that that was just fantastic you know oliver over the years you you've tried university you went to college you were a municipal counsellor, gardener photographer firefighter medical first responder tour guide even an inventor which i want to get to in a middle in a minute do you think you mm. d- you describe yourself as a restless soul Or an adventurous soul?
1: I think probably a bit of both. Okay, cool. I think, I think like I'm an adventurous soul. I need to go on an adventure. I go on an adventure and I satisfy that and then I can come back and then I get restless for another adventure, mm. I remember there's this one time I went to India. I went to India and I backpacked around from Mumbai all through the south, and then up to Chennai, and then I went over to the Andaman Islands. And I was in India for for six months, and in, India's extreme, right? Nonstop extreme. sights, smells, take everything. And I I got back to to Prince Edward Island and I worked another summer, but I remember being on the plane and thinking like, whoa, what a trip, incredible India. And I said to myself, I said, I'm not gonna go back to India for a long time, but I will go back, but I'm not gonna go back on my own. Six months later, my sister's driving me over to Moncton. We're in the, we got a hotel before my flight the next morning. And my sister looks over at me and I'm shaking, my hands are shaking. And she looks over and she says, what's wrong? I said, I can't believe I'm flying back to India tomorrow for another six months. <laughs> so exactly what I said I wasn't going to do, I was doing. And, uh, and yeah, so that describes me. So I got back from this Camino and I was satisfied. But now, you know, the wheels are turning. I'm thinking of other trips Caminos, um, but the world's at a standstill. And, uh, and I thought I'd reach out to you.
0: Yeah. Well, that's right. We can't travel at all. I've been saying for the last few weeks, you know, we can't even travel within one from one state to the other. And I I understand just reading this morning, uh, and it's, what is it? The, the 20, the 31st of of October today, um, that, a lot of the regions in Spain are closing their borders. So they're telling pilgrims to go home um, because you won't be yeah. able to walk from one from one area to another. Let's let's talk about something a bit different. You and your okay. business partner invented the fork forkula. f o r k The Forkula. T U L A. The Forkula, the world's yeah. first fork accessory. Tell us that story. <laughs> the world's first fork accessory.
1: So, yeah, and you know what? And it, it, it relates to the Camino because it's perfect, actually. Food and the restaurant industry has always been a big part of my life. Um, my father and mother started this restaurant when I was six years old, uh, the Landmark Cafe, which we ran for 30 years. Um, two years ago, we sold it. And, you know, after running a restaurant for 30 years – we did what any other sane people would do, and my sister went and started another restaurant. So she is a restaurant called The Cork and Cast here in Charlottetown, and, um, and I work with her now. But over the years, you know, in this, in growing up in the restaurants and, uh, and serving people, and, you know, hey, how was everything? Can I take that out of your way? And one thing you'd hear from so many people is just, you know, oh, that was so good. I wish I could just lick my plate so you you think of this and I'm always thinking of ideas and I had this idea the fortula a spatula for your fork um so now you can lick your plate in public but it was one of those things that was just like buried in the back of my mind um and and to tell you the truth I had no idea how to take that idea and turn it into a real product um and for years that was in my mind and I remember after the, the Camino Francaise, I was in Finisterre, and we were sitting and chatting, and I thought, you know, I can do this, this fortunate thing. And I, I think, you know, when I get home, I'll see, see what happens. I'll say, I'm going to do it, okay? So I got home, and I, I contacted my good buddy from college, Josh, um, who's, still, who's still a good friend, <laughs> and we're still always scheming up things. But basically, we decided we were going to do it, and in six months, uh, we had a product. We had the Fortula, and we sourced all our own manufacturing and, and uh, designed our molds and everything, and you know, within two and a half years, we took it from idea to product, uh, the videos that we made where different companies made had like 50 million views online. Wow! We had sales to over 40 countries around the world, and then uh, and then we we were on a show called Dragon's Den, which is kind of like the Canadian version of Shark Tank. I know in the UK they have Dragon's Den, but it's where you pitch your your ideas, yeah, um, or products or whatever to investors. And and we were there, so we were on the show. You know, lights, camera action and uh like most T V smoke and mirrors. <laughs> but it was it was a lot of fun and we were on national T V we were on Netflix and we ended up uh making a sale but then also getting two offers and making a deal with one of the dragons. Um in reality after due diligence and all this it never it never happened but um you know in the end, we took an idea and turned it into a product, and it was the whole, it was the uh, the thought, action, result, process that is it's it's more satisfying than the actual product itself, right? Because at the end of the day, here we are selling this product that no one in the world needs a piece of silicone <laughs> to lick your plate, you know? Um, but, but that was our, our philosopher's stone, our, our moment of alchemy where, um, you know, you think of something. It's the same thing as making a sandwich. You, you can't just say, oh, I wish I had a sandwich. I wish I had a sandwich. Say, hey, I wish I had a sandwich. But then you got to go to the fridge, make that sandwich. Then you come back and the result, you're there and you have a sandwich, so very much like this Camino Sor Este, I say, I think I want to do this. I'm going to do it. I did as much research as I could do, um, but then I flew there and I did it. And, um, and for anyone that wants to do it or is thinking of doing the Sur Este or the Levant from Valencia or whatever, um, you can totally do it. It's yeah. set up. There's arrows, there's fletches, there's the, the shells, stamps, everything.
0: Yeah. So. There you go. Wow, that's a great story. The fork chiller. So tell me. The You, fork you, you and I were bouncing um, messages back and forth to each other about a week ago about clean content. Talk to me about clean content. I love this story.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, and, and this, the fork so goes right into this here I am me I'm 37 years old I have a life um of experiences uh uh, I'm full of full of experiences and knowledge and a wealth of content that should be shared with the world what we see here now um we're kind of in a time where so much has been completely saturated with like violence and sex and drugs and so much moralist content. And we see this in, you know, it's its taken over the culture. What was once counterculture mm. is now the culture. Yeah, And it's in the movies and music, uh, games, magazines, the cartoons, the advertisements, the Hollywood. Uh, and, and like I said, it was once counterculture. Now it's culture, but at the same time, Especially with uh, with COVID here, and as the world's kind of at a pause, and we're reevaluating what's important, and that maybe the stars in the sky are more important than the stars on TV. And as we as we go through this, and the pendulum swings back, there's a void of clean content. So um, so really interesting. People, pilgrims, doing hikes or traveling, caminos, pilgrimages. This is stuff that people are going to want to do, um, especially after this period of change and loss and transformation. So they're going to want to see, like if someone was going to want to do one of these hikes, they'd probably want to see more content on it to do their research. Yeah, yeah. So have new, more positive role models, uh, you know, inspirational stuff. And it's out there. There's plenty of it. But there needs to be a lot more.
0: Mm. Yeah, clean content. I just love the concept. content. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's very straightforward. It's very simple. Very simple message, too. We could all do with a little bit more inspiration as opposed to sort of everything else that swamps us all day, every day. You know, your Instagram page is Outer Space and Dinosaurs. And the pictures mm. are exquisite. And by and large, they're faces. The pictures are yeah. faces, pictures taken all over the world on your travels, faces. So why faces? And Oliver, what does someone's face tell you? So the, the faces, this started as,
1: um, well, like, we always had these National Geographic magazines in the house, And, um, and growing up, you know, there was, even if you didn't read them, you'd still flip through every one. And, uh, and, and I, and I always liked this guy, this Steve McCurry, also a portrait photographer. And, uh, and I thought, oh, that's really neat. So I started taking portraits and a buddy of mine, once we went down through, uh, we traveled from Prince Edward Island overland to Ecuador I went back two years later and finished it off, Ecuador, down to Ushuaia, Tierra del Fuego. But we traveled down there, and as we were traveling, I was working on this project. I called it the Global 360 Project. And basically, I had this crazy vision that in two years, I'd travel the entire world and take portraits of, you know, all the faces and cultures in this around the world. And after six months, I knew... You know, there's no way you can travel the world in two years and really, really do it properly. Um, So basically, for the last 20 years, (laughs) I've still been working on this project. Um, And I take all kinds of of photos and stuff, but I really focus on on the portraits and the faces. And that's what you'll see. This Instagram account, um, it's only portraits, and like you said, it's outer space and dinosaurs.
0: And so what do those people's faces tell you? What's behind the face? Do you worry about that or are you simply taking the image? Or or do you look for a deeper, a deeper meaning to the story?
1: Well, a lot of these faces, like a lot of this travel I do, it's, you know, I'm not really going from Hilton to Marriott to... I'm 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 really deep in countries. I I go to a lot of places that are tough to get to. So I take a lot of local buses, trains, little boats, hitchhike uh, to to get to some really remote places. Yeah. So by the time I'm taking the the pictures, I'm kind of I'm in their house. Mm. So I'm cap kind of. Capturing like I said back earlier, the world is my mosh pit. And these hands have have helped me and and have guided me, fed me, given me places to stay, uh given me the right direct given me the wrong directions. But these are the faces of the hands that have ushered me kind of through.
0: Yeah, it's the photographs are absolutely beautiful. Outer space and dinosaurs on Instagram. Hey, um, Oliver, tell us a Camino story. There was one time when I when I did the, uh,
1: the Camino Francaise, there, there was one part I had. Uh, I was with my family, right? So my sister and my dad and my sister's boyfriend, uh, the four of us were hiking, and we met another French couple. And we rolled into this town uh, called Hornios del Camino. Of course, yeah. Little town. And we, I think it must have been a Sunday, but we checked into this little spot and, and we, you know, backpacks off. We started having some drinks. It went into the afternoon and we noticed the owners kind of closing up the restaurant and packing up to leave and... Kind of as they had already closed everything and they were leaving, kind of said, hey, you know, where can we get some food in this town? And they looked and they were, everything's closed. Everything in town's closed. And uh, and so the six of us, you know, we didn't really think, but as the evening came around, everything was closed. There was only six of us there and we realized, you know, here we are. We're going to be really hungry. And we kind of pooled uh, what we had. And we had a bag of pasta, a loaf of bread, and a thing of cheese. And then in the hostel, they had, you know, there was the staples there. There was salt, pepper, sugar, tea, some leftover garlic bulbs, and the olive oil. But behind the hostel, they had a big garden. And this would have been, you know, the end of October. And there was someone in the garden and, um, and my sister and I, we went in and we kind of talked to the guy and we said, Can we take some of this stuff? And he said, Yeah, take what you want. And, you know, 30 years in the restaurant business, <laughs> her and I went through the garden and went to, uh, went to work. And the six of us sat down to this meal, a feast. We had a big uh, tomato cucumber salad. We had a big bowl of pasta, and we made a sauce with like tomatoes, onions, uh, garlic, peppers, zucchini. We had spinach in there and chard. We had all these little baby carrots, like you know, the size of a, the size of a euro, and we baked those with rosemary. We made the cheesy garlic bread. Did up all the rice. And it was one of those places with the vending machine yeah. where you could get the beers and the vending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and we drained it. <laughs> and and you know it was it was like the ultimate Peter Pan meal, right? You have nothing, and then boom! Fantastic.
0: We had a feast. What a wonderful story! That's so lovely. I know exactly where yeah. that town is, and that's. Uh that's a pretty barren part of the world to come up with something so lovely and, and fresh in that environment. October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How fantastic. How wonderful. You know, I I think we are blessed, Oliver, you know. I think we're blessed yeah. to have inspiration. And I think we're For also sure. blessed to have a reason to talk to people around the world, to make the world a smaller place, from Prince Edward Island in Eastern Canada, to Lilyfield in inner Sydney. Two worlds together come together to tell a story of pilgrimage, of hope, of promise, and of opportunity. Uh, I I have written down here the post-traumatic travel syndrome and your happy depression, which I really loved as well. So (laughs) I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I'll get to Prince Edward Island one day to play. At the Small Halls yeah. Festival, I promise. And I will
1: introduce you. <laughs> when, when you walk onto stage,
0: I'll introduce you and then uh, the show can begin. Oh, how fantastic. Well, look, until then, <laughs> Buen Camino, my friend. I- Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I've loved your story and I look forward to keeping in contact and one day our paths will cross, hopefully, at a Small Hall Festival in Your Small World. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Dan. Great talking to you. And, uh, and I love listening to the show. Buen Camino. Buen Camino.
0: My guest this week, the Canadian pilgrim, Oliver Sauvey. I wish I knew who to credit for my quote this week, and I wish I'd said it myself. <laughs> we come with nothing. We go with nothing. But one great thing we can achieve in our beautiful life is a little remembrance in someone's mind and a small place in someone's heart. Thank you for your company, your love, your support for being there on our collective Camino. I'm Dan Mullins. Until next week, Buen Camino.